Hi, this is Pastor Curtis Crawford welcoming you to our podcast. At Revive Outreach Church, we're striving to revive an awareness of Christ in our communities through Christ-centered compassion, service, and evangelism. You can learn more about us online at www.reviveoc.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash church. We hope that you enjoy this message, and God bless. We're going to continue our series uh, on the book of Romans today uh, with Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. You, you, you may be seated this morning, but I'll, I'll give you a moment to open up your Bibles to, again, Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 uh, through 11. We're going to, uh, as uh, weeks uh, pass, we're going to go uh, verse by verse uh, through uh, this passage. Uh, but before we dive into to, uh, chapter 5, let's do a quick rehash of what we've talked about so far. Um, we've talked about that uh, everyone has sinned and, and everyone is guilty before God. We've talked about what an unchecked lifestyle would be and uh, that God would eventually, if, uh, if we continue living in rebelliousness and not uh, call upon Him and uh, you know, confess our sins and make him Lord of our life, that he would turn uh, those folks over to their sin and a corrupt mind and a worthless mind, and uh, that he would just turn them over to be consumed by their sin. Uh, and then we talked about how even those who might uh, consider themselves to be religious and exempt from God's judgment, uh, that they, they are not. Uh, just because you're religious doesn't mean that you're saved. Uh, just because we go to the church, it doesn't mean uh, that Christ is Lord of our life. And so he, he addressed that to make sure that everyone understands that we're all guilty before God. It doesn't matter who our parents were, our grandparents were. It doesn't matter if you started sitting on the pews from the time that you were an infant uh, in, a, in, a, in a carrier or strapped to your mama. Uh, it, it doesn't matter, except if we call on Christ. Uh, but then he gave us good news, if you recall, uh, starting in chapter 3 and then uh, throughout chapter 4 about justification being where God looks at us and he says, hey, looks at us as just as we never sinned, and talking about imputing righteousness to us, that God credits our account so that uh, we never, our, our account never runs dry, uh, that we, uh, there's enough grace to cover the sins of the past, the present, and the future. Christ and that uh, righteousness, and, and for our, uh, to make it in a way that we can understand, is it means right standing before God. That uh, God now no longer considers us enemies, that, but we are at peace with him. Uh, he used the example in chapter 4, the examples of Abraham and the example of David as a support to why justification Forgiveness of sin is apart from obedience uh, to the law, that we can't earn it, we don't deserve it, nothing we can do would ever be good enough or great enough to earn God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness, and to be de 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 uh, declared righteous before Him. Uh, and so it is an act of faith alone. And He showed how that Abraham, uh, way before the law and even before circumcision, uh, he was justified by faith alone. He also showed that after circumcision, after God had uh, spoke to him and um, declared uh, the you know this uh, ritual of, of circumcision that would uh, make them um, 
uh, you know, separate them as God's people, that Abraham was justified before that. And then he talked about David, and because David is after the law. He was also someone that the nation of Israel would have respected. He was considered to be uh, the greatest king of Israel. And how that David even said that justification was by faith, that you couldn't earn and deserve it, but it was just an act of God's grace and mercy as to why you and I can be saved. And so that brings us now to chapter 5 to continue to talk about how great this thing is that you and I are forgiven by God, that we're justified by God, and that God declares us righteous. Amen. What it means, how great it is. We've had all this bad news. I remember when I was preaching on 1 and chapter 1 and chapter 2, people saying, wow, that hurt this morning. And, you know, even up here preaching it, you're preaching and it's... Uh, it's heavy and it's weighted, uh, very weighty, uh, because it, uh, it is convicting, which is what it's supposed to do. The law and those things is supposed to convict us. So, but what we're going to begin to look at today is the benefits of being a believer, of, uh, of putting your faith in God, of being justified, of making Christ Lord of our lives. And so in the uh, part one here, we're going to be looking at the benefits uh, of being justified, and then we will continue that in to next week. Nothing happens, the Lord's will. So uh, if you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 5, let's look at verse 1 together. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, having been justified, if you and I put our faith in Christ and Christ alone... And we have made him Lord of our life, Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. You'll hear me quote that a million times. You might as well highlight it, mark it, tab it up. Because why? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you live in your heart that is risen from the dead, then you are saved. Right? So if you've uh, confessed Christ, if you've asked for forgiveness of your sins, uh, you've asked him to be Lord of the life, your life, and you've meant it, then you're a Christian. You're saved. Okay? And you're justified, and you are righteous, and these benefits apply to you. But listen, what the enemy likes to do is he likes to convince you that somehow you're not good enough, to, or that you're not worthy, or that God would never grant these benefits to you. Amen. But let me tell you, if you are a child of God, they are available to you and us. And the benefits that we're going to go through today... Uh, they're, tan uh, they're intangible in many ways. There's those intangible benefits that, that, that you and I get. And so verse 1 tells us, first of all, that we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Now this isn't uh, that peace that passes all understanding that we talk about. This isn't that inner sense of comfort, that inner sense of joy, that inner sense that everything is going to be okay. The peace that Paul is talking about here is this. That you and I are no longer at war with God. Right? Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, you and I are at war with God. That he is treasuring up wrath, or that we are treasuring up wrath against us for the day of judgment. Until we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, we are in rebellion towards God. At war with him, which is why society acts the way that society acts, right? When you're at war with something, it means you fundamentally do, fundamentally do not believe in what it stands for, and you are rebelling against it. 
in the Revolutionary War, we rebelled against England because we didn't like their rules, their regulations, we didn't like what they were doing, and so therefore, those who the colonists banded together, and they rebelled. They were at war because they rebelled against the leader, and they were at war, and so the same thing applies to us. That rebellion puts us at odds with God, and you and I cannot expect to have a fulfilling, abundant, joyful lives as long as we are at war with God. We will constantly be seeking that which is opposite of God to meet our needs, to fill us, to satisfy us in every way. And so uh, the great thing, the first great benefit is that uh, we are no longer at war with God. And when we are no longer at war with God, then we were, are, are, uh, we can be recipients of all of his promises. You and I cannot have the protections or the promises of God manifest in our lives as long as we are at war with him. So if you've not accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're wondering why you're miserable, and you can't be satisfied, and you feel guilt and shame all the time, and you just can't seem to figure out where you're going to get your joy from, your happiness from, and everything keeps going wrong, and you're miserable, or maybe everything is right, and you're miserable, it's because we are at war with God, and we need to make peace with Him through His Son. That's the first great thing. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, If you who were once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The great thing about God is that we're at war with him and he doesn't make us prisoners of war when we surrender. When we surrender our lives to him, he doesn't make us second-class citizens. He doesn't make us prisoners of war. What does he do? According to Colossians, he presents us holy, blameless, and above reproach. He makes us his children. The Bible says, and Paul will talk about this later in Romans, that we're adopted. We are made his children. We're on the outside no longer, so we're not prisoners of war. We become part of God's family. Because it's where we were meant to be in the first place. Yes. It's meant to be where we, uh, that was how it was meant to be. J. Vernon McGee writes, there are a great many people who pillow their heads at night, not knowing what it is to have peace in their hearts. Oh, how many weary souls today are laboring with a guilt complex and would love to go somewhere to have the guilt removed from their souls. A Christian psychologist told me several years ago, the only peace you can have, the only place you can have a guilt complex removed is at the cross of Christ. The only way we can get rid of our guilt and shame is through confession as Christ as Lord and casting all of that on Christ and being truly forgiven. The second benefit of being justified is confessing Christ as Lord and Savior and making Him Lord of our lives is that we now have access to God. The second, uh, verse 2, part, the first part says, uh, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now you may say, because you've been in church and you've never known the difference, uh, access to God we take for granted. 
Because as long as you've been alive and as long as you've known, you can pray to God anywhere. Uh, you can uh, pray for forgiveness. You can seek God's mercy. You can petition him at any place, at any time. In your car, in your shower, at home, you have free and open access to God to have an intimate relationship with him. We can have know him and him know us. But there was a time when that wasn't possible. There was a time when only a select few had access to talk to God in that way, to come into his presence and to know him in that intimate way. In the book of Exodus, uh, it gives us an example in chapter 19 of God telling Moses in verse 9, he said, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you uh, uh, in, a thick in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. God wasn't going to the people, he was going to who? Moses. Uh, he was talking to Moses, not the people to Moses. Uh, he called Moses up to Mount Sinai and talked to Moses alone. In fact, uh, when Moses was on top of that mountain, the Bible says that God had built a holy wall around that mountain, basically, and that if even if an animal got too close, it would be killed. The people couldn't even come into God's presence. If you look at Exodus chapter 28, verses 33 through 35, you will see that the uh, process that was given to the high priest that would enter into the Holy of Holies, it says, and upon uh, it's him, this is a garment that the priest would wear when he would go to minister into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the inner room where the Ark of the Covenant sat. With, if you recall, we talked about this previously, the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant with the two cherubim, where the high priest would go in once a year and make atonement for the sins of Israel. Only once a year. Any other time of year, the priest would stand outside of the Holy of Holies they would burn incense and allow the smoke to enter in, but they were never allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter in to the Holy of Holies. And that only happened once a year. In verse 28, it says, Upon his family shall make uh, pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around his family, and bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around. And that shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before God, and when he comes out, that he may not die. God had rules that were special that only the high priest could enter into his presence. And they had to enter in with a pure heart, but not just that. They had to enter in in the right attitude and attire. God had a set uh, amount of rules. He said set rules in place that showed that that priest was separated unto God and that he was holy. And apparently there had been occasions when the high priest wasn't holy because it became a deal where they would tie a rope around the priest's waist because if he got in there and never came out and God struck him dead, they had to pull him out. So I, I'm assuming uh, that that must have happened at some point <laughs> because why else? God doesn't say tie a, ro a rope around his waist that I can see in Scripture. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you entered into his presence undeserving and unworthy, 
you entered into that holy of holies, you would be struck dead. And only the high priest had access. But here's the good news, that after Christ died upon the cross, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. Now let me tell you about that veil for a minute. That veil started off as a curtain, right? Not, not, not anything, you know, real thick. It was just a curtain. And it separated the Holy of Holies, that holy place I just told you about, from everybody else. Now over time, that veil would get tears in it. And they weren't allowed to get rid of the veil. So you know what they did? They patched it. And they began to lay layer after layer after layer upon this veil over time to fix it because they could not go into the Holy Holies. They couldn't remove it. And so they just kept adding layers to it as they fixed it. Now, in my mind, that is significant because it just shows over time that we just cannot access God, and that barrier goes greater and greater and greater, right? It just demonstrates how far we actually are from God to be able to actually enter into his presence without Christ. Amen. But here's the deal. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross, according to verse 51 of Matthew chapter 27, that veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. So this thick piece of material, God broke it in two, tore it in two, to, as a symbol that now man could go into God's presence because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and not have to worry about him striking us dead. That man could now enter into God's presence and call upon his name directly and have an intimate relationship with him. That's why Hebrews chapter 14 verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So not just boldly come before the throne of grace for forgiveness, but also come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need. We can call upon God at any time, at anywhere, with a pure heart, Right? But we don't have we don't need nobody to intercede on our behalf. We don't need no one to confess our sins before God for us. We don't need any intermediary here that is on earth because Christ Himself sets as our mediator before God and us. So when you and I mess up, God looks over at Jesus, not at you. He, he, Jesus is the one who mediates on our behalf. He's our advocate, He's our lawyer. Right? And the only thing he has to say is, Father, I died for them. I shed my blood for them. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Right? He doesn't have to make no argument. He doesn't have to do any kind of deposition. He doesn't have to, you know, make some valiant speech. He just has to say, see those nails? Scars at my hands. Thank you, Jesus. I did that for them. The next thing that we get when we accept Christ as Lord Savior, that next benefit, according to Romans chapter 2, the latter half of the verse is, is that we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We get the hope of God. Now listen, you've heard me say this before. 
Underline that word hope in your Bible. Highlight it right in your Bible. The New Testament, the Greek word translated hope, is not hope like you and I use the word hope. Like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Wishful thinking. Right? Uh, I, I hope I win the lottery. I hope that this happens. I hope that that happens. Right? Kind of a, a wishful uh, thing that you know might not happen or could not happen or won't happen, but you just kind of wish it would happen. Right? When the New Testament, the Greek word for hope, has no uncertainty in it. It means that it is guaranteed. So when Paul says we can rejoice in the hope, he's not saying you can rejoice in the hope like you and I might think, that, well, it might happen, it could happen, if God's in the right mood, he'll deliver. If God is in the right presence of mind, he'll deliver. If he feels like it that day, he'll deliver. No, it is a hope that is guaranteed that when God promises something, he will deliver it. And our hope, we can rejoice in that hope because it means that you and I have a future. We have a hope of a future, no matter what the world looks like now. Listen, no matter how bad you and I sin, no matter how far we were separated from God, no matter how bad we acted, no matter how evil we are, we were, no matter what our past was, no matter what your past is, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you've done today, if you accept Christ as Lord and Savior, you have a future that is not associated with your past. God casts our sins as far as the east is from our west, never to be remembered against us again. And so therefore, we have a future not dependent upon our past, but dependent upon Christ. So that future is guaranteed despite who we are. Despite what you see with your eyes, despite what you feel, despite what your circumstances say, you have a guaranteed future. So what is that future? You say, Pastor, my life stinks right now. Pastor, I'm in pain right now. Pastor, I'm sick right now. Pastor, I might lose my home. Pastor, my job is terrible. I've been laid off. My circumstances are terrible. What are you telling me about a future and a hope? I don't feel like I have any hope, and I don't feel like I have a future. Well, God says you do have a future, but here's the thing. Why God blesses us to have an abundant life here on earth, it's not necessarily what you and I consider to be abundant. Right? It means an abundance of joy and peace and hope. It means that bad things might still happen, but we'll be okay knowing that God has it under control. The future that Paul is talking about here is heaven. Right? He's talking about heaven. This hope is a promise of heaven, Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven. For which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the place where God dwells and where Christ himself is present. Amen. So what is heaven? It's our home. It's the believer's home. Listen, let me tell you something. This is not your home. The apartment you live in is not your home. The house you're living in is not your home. It's borrowed. Right? Uh, your name may be on the lease. Your name may be on the uh, mortgage or the title or whatever the case may be. 
You're just passing through. You and I are just pilgrims passing through, migrating across this earth, right? Uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, what is the word for those who... Nomads, right? We're just passing through, right? Uh, living our lives, but uh, we don't have a home on this earth. It's temporary. Our home is in heaven. John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3 says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I don't care where you live today, whether it's under a bridge, in an apartment, in a homeless shelter, in a house, you have a, a mansion waiting on you in heaven, where there's streets of gold, and the gates are made out of jewels so big, they're bigger than you, the Bible says in the book of Revelation. A city so beautiful, a place where the holy life sources the glory and the radiance of God, a place where the Bible says there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more hurt, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more depression, there'll be no more anxiety, there'll be no more fear, there'll be none of the things that you and I face on this earth. It'll be that perfect home that you and I could possibly imagine. Amen. 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 That's our future, and it's hard when you're young. To think about heaven in that way. I had Alex say, Dad, I want to have a family. I want to have kids. When I was young, I said, I just want to get out of high school. I want to learn to drive. I want to have a family. I want to have kids. I wasn't thinking about heaven. But let me tell you, the older I get, and the more I hurt, and the more things I face, and the more things I see, this brother is looking forward to heaven. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's a place where you won't be in pain. It's a place where you'll never be betrayed. No one will ever stab you in the back again. Yeah. No one ever will ever talk about you bad. No one will ever let you down again. Amen. No one will ever hurt you again. Yes. There'll be no more death. That's heaven. It's where our names are registered. Luke chapter 10, verse 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The people got a little excited because they cast out a demon. A demon was cast out and they were getting excited. Jesus said, don't get excited about that. You can do that. You have the authority to do that. Get excited about the fact that your name is written in heaven. Amen. See, right now, if you know Christ is Lord and Savior, there's a mansion set up just for you. And it's got your name written on it. And only you got the key. Thank you, Jesus. In heaven, there's a place just for you. The Bible says that you and I are treasuring up rewards in heaven. Amen. Uh, there's a bank vault in heaven. That only you got the key to. It's got your name written on it. And even better than that, there's a Lamb Book of Life that God has displayed. And in that Book of Life, your name is written so that when the day comes, when you stand before God, God will have uh, the Book of Life and He'll say, Hey, look, uh, there's Lily Crawford. Welcome in, my good and faithful servant. It'll say, uh, uh, there's Hopi 
Welcome in, my good and faithful servant. Oh, look at there. That's Bill's name right there. Welcome in. There's Jerome. There's Heather. Welcome in. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen. Your name is registered in heaven. And the devil can't erase it. And you can't erase it. It's there. Amen. Written by the hand of God. You have your own place in heaven. Finally, our inheritance awaits us. 1 Peter 1.4 To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven to you. That's why Jesus said, don't build up all the treasures on this earth, but lay up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy that corruption and corrosion and things, when you and I die and, and, and everything we have here eventually pass away. Amen. Your kids will spend it. Their kids will spend it. They'll destroy your property. They won't treat it as good as you did. Right? <laughs> uh, all that's going to go by the wayside. But the one thing that is never corrupted is our award that's waiting for us in heaven. Amen. Our reward in heaven where we have an inheritance. Now listen, I don't know what those rewards are going to be. The Bible talks about crowns. I think there's seven of them that the, the Bible talks about, the crown of victory, the crown of salvation, all these different crowns. Someday I'll do a sermon series on all the crowns. I don't know exactly what that inheritance is. I don't know what it means other than we know that, it's, that when we get to heaven, it's more than just showing up at the door. There's something else waiting for us. Right, and it's it's based on how we live here on earth. Your salvation is not earned, but your reward, your inheritance, is built up over time. That's clearly taught in Scripture. Paul teaches that, and now Peter also teaches that. The other thing that you and I have a hope in is that we're going to have a new body. We're going to have a new body. Philippians three twenty one says, "Who will transform our lowly bodies?" Meaning God. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The Greek word transform used in Philippians chapter 3.21 it is where we get our English word schematic which is an internal design of something. You know what a schematic is? Uh, I work in IT and we, we don't call them necessarily schematics but they're diagrams of how the inner workings are. They're diagrams of how something should be built or how something is built. So God has got a schematic for you so that when you and I die or when you and I are called up to heaven, our bodies are going to be transformed by a pre-designed purpose so we are now glorified. What does that mean? It means you never have a boo-boo again. It means that you never hurt again. It means that you'll never have pain again. Your body will be perfect. That's right. Amen to that. You in pain, you hurt, you've dealt with sickness, you've had loss, you see people die. Uh, it gets you excited to know that you'll never face that again because your body will be perfect. All, even those who are dead and buried, those who were cremated, all those people that believed upon Christ, 
And, and he, all those people have a new body waiting for them. Amen. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 55, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So we're not all going to die before Christ comes again, but all of us will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible and shall be changed. Those ashes, those bodies, in an instant, they're going to be brought up out of the ground. They're going to be transformed into glorious bodies, put back together for a glorious, immortal, eternal body. Amen. Amen. And God's going to do it in his power. And in his might. The dead will be raised incorruptible and shall be changed. For this incorruptible must put on incorruption. Or this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption. And this mortal has put on uh, immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? You see, the power that Jesus, the Bible says, the power that Satan had over us was death. But Jesus Christ broke the power he had over us through the death of the cross when he walked up to Satan and said, give me over the keys of hell, death, and the grave. They belong to me. He rose again three days later. Amen. And now he controls death completely. He broke the control. The only thing the devil has over you is death. He, your body will die. Christian or not, look at what he went after Job with. What was it? His body. That's, that's the only thing the devil has power over on this earth. But Christ took it from him. So that even if you die, you're going to live again. Amen. Even though this mortal shell may crumble and turn to dust, someday you're going to have an eternal, immortal body. Amen. Uncorruptible. Meaning I'm never going to be fat again. <laughs> you're never going to walk with a limp again. You're never going to hurt in that broken bone that it hurts now. None of it will be there. They'll do an x-ray of you, and they'll not see. It'll be nothing but perfection. They'll do an MRI of your brain, and they'll be, it'll be perfect, the perfect brain. Everything will function exactly how God intended it to function. So therefore, all of your loved ones that have gone on before you that died in Christ, guess what? You don't have to worry. You're going to see them in heaven someday. Amen. Because death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Because you and I who believe in Christ, death ain't the final word on the subject. Amen. Amen. In fact, death is just the beginning. Amen. Wow. Because once you die, you, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And when you're in God's presence, uh, everything is perfect. Amen. Revelation 21.4 says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things 
have passed away. Oh my goodness, I could preach a sermon on that. The former things have passed away. All that stuff that's bothering you now ain't going to bother you no more. All that stuff that's got you tore up mentally, that's got you tore up physically, that all passes away. The laws that are in place, the, the corruption that was in place because of sin, all gets burned away. It all passes away. It's all going away. It ain't going to mean nothing anymore. Amen. It all passes away. Next, in verses 3 and 4. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Jim Ernie McGee writes, it takes trouble to bring out the best in the believer's life. You say, my goodness, tribulations doesn't sound like a very good benefit of a believer. The difference between us and unbelievers is, is tribulation, and that word uh, tr translated tribulation means like a pressure of crushing something, like crushing a grape or crushing an olive, right? It's the, that's how strong the pressure is. But when you crush a grape, what do you get? Juice, you, you can make wine out of it, you get juice. When you crush an olive, you get oil out of it that's useful for all kinds of different things, right? That pressure produces something great, but it requires pressure, and pressure hurts. Mm -hmm. If those grapes could talk, uh, they wouldn't be too excited that they were being squazzed to grape juice. Because mm -hmm. it would hurt, and it would be painful, and they wouldn't care how much juice they produced. Because they were in the pressure. They wouldn't care who they helped. They wouldn't care about any of those things. Because in the tribulation, in the pressure, all you can think about is the pressure. But here's the difference between us and those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. In us, pressure produces fruit and blessing. And the unbeliever, pressure produces, produces death, destruction, and misery. Amen. See, we as Christians... When we face pain, suffering, hurt, tribulation, and trials, we are guaranteed they're going to produce good benefit, character, joy, hope, right? It's going to produce perseverance. We are promised they're going to produce good fruit, those things. But in the unbeliever, the only thing you're promised, the only thing an unbeliever is promised is hurt and pain and misery and suffering. But you and I as a believer in Christ... We're promised that our tribulations will produce perseverance and will give you and I the ability to hold on in spite of what we're facing, to not be destroyed every time something bad happens. I don't know about you, but early on in my life, and there are times when I suffer, and I've gotten way better. My mama will tell you I've gotten so much better, but it's through facing tribulation where if something bad would happen and you just want to say, God, let me eat worms and die. God, I don't want to go through this anymore. God, just take me home. But through tribulation, you and I have a hope because we produces perseverance which allows you and I to hold on in spite of what we see and feel on this earth. Amen. It, it produces that so we get stronger and stronger. See, the world may see us as weak. They see meekness as weakness. They see us persevering and just taking things and holding on. That is a demonstration of our strength and our growth, not a demonstration of weakness. 
where they run to everything that is not of God, drugs and alcohol. They run to illicit sex and pornography and all of these things to take their minds off of what they're facing and their pain and their hurt, right? They destroy their lives with those things. Uh, even the wealthiest people that have cocaine problems and heroin problems and, uh, right, and meth problems have all these drug problems and drinking problems and they're destroying themselves uh, with sexual disease because they have no control because they're seeking peace and their pain from the world. You and I don't have to worry about that, right? Because if we hold on to God and we're children of God, what our pain produces is perseverance. And that perseverance produces character. And that word character literally means proven character. And it's from the Greek word that simply means proof. And it was used for testing metals to determine their purity. So what God is doing through tribulation is he's making us more in the image of Christ. He's purifying us a little bit more every single day, bringing us through trial, through trial, through trial, and all of that results in hope. And what that means is this, is that you and I, as we face pain, and God works us through it, and we make it through the other side, we know that our God is capable of doing anything. So that when we face the next battle, we know that our God is there. When we face the next battle, we know that our God is there. Why? Because he was there before. Amen. He's never left us. He's never forsaken us. He's the friend that's sticking closer than a brother, right? He said he wouldn't let us be destroyed. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. That's our hope. Tribulations produce perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. When you and I have gone through the fire, the Bible says in Malachi that he sets as a refiner of, of, of silver, a refiner of precious metals. What that means is, is that God will only leave you in the fire long enough to make you who he wants you to be, and he takes you out. And the great thing about God is he doesn't leave us in the fire until we become 100% of what we're supposed to be. He does this a little bit at a time. Amen. Right? By a refiner who works with precious metals that will tell you that if they put that metal in a refinery and they walk away and don't pay attention to it, they will destroy it. Right? The impurities in them will destroy that metal and it will become useless. So that means the refiner has to step there and watch that silver, that gold, that precious metal to make sure that only the impurities come up. They scoop them off the top and at a certain point they have to remove it so it's still usable, malleable, and worth something. That means that God, according to Malachi, he sits next to you. And when you're going through the fire, he's right there. So that at the exact right moment before you are crushed or destroyed, he pulls you out. He never is far away. He's watching over you. We are loved. Uh, we are the love of God. We are loved by God. Uh, verse five. The first part says, "The hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts." That means that we are loved by God. God's love for us. For uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter five, verse ten, which we're going to look at in a minute, minute, that God demonstrates His love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? That even when we were sinners, he loved us so much, he died for us. God loves us so much 
1 John 4, 16 says that we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love uh, abides in God, and God in him. God pours out his love lavishly upon all of us, and it is overflowing in our hearts. And it is that love that allows us to love others. It is that love that God's love drives out all fear, and, God, and God's love enables us to love him. God's love drives the fear out of our lives and enables us to love him and it gives us what we need to love others. The last part of verse 5 says, uh, the Holy Spirit is given to us by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. A testimony of God's love for us is the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to you and I. It is evidence that we belong to God, first and foremost. Ephesians 1.13 says in him, You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's like when an artist signs his painting to let them know that who painted it, who, who did it, who created it. When you accept Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is, is given to you immediately, and it's God's seal of approval on you, and it's God's signature on you that says you belong to him, and nobody can take that away. No one can scrub God's signature off of your life. 1 John 14 says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit inside of you is such a wondrous gift. And I preached a whole sermon series on the Holy Spirit. You can find it on our uh, uh, Revive Outreach, uh, reviveoc.org. Uh, go on there and just search for Holy Spirit. You'll find a whole sermon series on the Holy Spirit, who he is, his works, what he does inside of us, and what an awesome blessing he is to us. The next benefit, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We are delivered from the wrath of God by those who do not know except Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, that while they will be punished and they will have to suffer and they will have to spend eternity in hell, which is called the second death, you and I will not have to experience that. Rather than experiencing God's judgment and being tortured and experiencing that pain and suffering, we will, we don't have to endure that. So we are delivered from God's wrath. And last but not least, verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We have joy in God. We can rejoice. Rejoice because of who God is, his love for us. Rejoice because of what Christ did for us that we no longer have to be enemies of God. Rejoice that we're going to have heaven and that we're going to have a new body. Rejoice that our tribulations mean something, that they're getting us prepared for something. They're making us better, making us more useful, making us malleable, usable, usable by God. We can rejoice in the fact that we have a future. We can rejoice in the fact that we don't have to just guess and hope and have wishful thinking as it means in an earthly terms, but we have a guaranteed future in God. We can rejoice in that, that no matter what you and I are facing right now in our lives, that we have a hope. So we should have a joy that the world doesn't understand. We should have a joy that we have to explain. 
So that when you and I are facing trials and tribulations, the world wants to know, how in the world are you still got a smile on your face? How in the world are you still serving Jesus? How in the world are you still going to church? Why in the world are you still doing this? Why in the world are you still doing that? Hasn't God forsaken you? Hasn't God let you down? And you can say, absolutely not. Jesus Christ died for me. And if he never does another thing for me, I will still worship him and glorify him. Why? Because I will rejoice at what I have because of the death and the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's worth rejoicing over. No matter what we feel, no matter how, what we see, no matter the circumstances that we face, we should always be able to rejoice. Amen. J. Bernie McGee again writes, it's be, it means that right now, wherever you are, whatever your problems are, my friend, you can joy, rejoice in God. Just think of it. You can rejoice that he lives and that he is who he is. You can rejoice because he has provided salvation for us and is willing to save us sinners and bring us into his presence someday. Let us stand. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach a loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.reviveoc.org or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 22405. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.